This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Hi and welcome to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, and this week I'm excited to be joined by a friend of a very good friend, Jay Vetti, whose name I have now figured out how to say. I will one day actually know how to say a guest name before, like, I get on the show. <laughs> but what's up, Jay? I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. We were just talking about how, like, we both just got off work, so we needed, like, if, I didn't want to hit record right away. So, like, I think we both need just, like, a minute. <laughs> I actually had to switch laptops in order to do this. So oh, yeah. I had to close one and open another. So you know, it's just it's so I have a work laptop. Um, I think a lot of people do. And I think it's so weird how many devices I end up owning. Because I have my work laptop, I have my gaming PC, and I have the machine that I'm on right now where I'm recording. Where it's like, why do I have so many fucking computers? This is ridiculous. Nobody needs this many machines. I try to keep try to keep my number of electronic devices that I own to a minimum. I have my work laptop, which I don't really see myself as owning because it's company property. That's fair. And then I have the laptop that I'm, you know, doing this interview on, my personal laptop, which, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty much everyone's got a laptop at this point. I have, you know, my iPhone. And as for personal electronic devices, that's, that's about it. I don't have an iPad. I don't have an Apple Watch. I don't have any of that stuff. I have a... I have a Fitbit, but I don't have one of the like super smart Fitbits. I have the one that just like tells me my steps, my heart rate, and when I sleep. And I'm kind of okay with that because that's specifically like what I got it to track. It's like, right. yeah, I want to track fitness and stuff. But um, anyway, uh, outside of fitness, obviously we are here to talk about Titanic. Speaking of my Fitbit, it just went the hell off. But <laughs> what is your Titanic story, Jay? Because I don't know your story at all. So, okay. Um, so I first saw the film, from what I can remember, I was about seven years old. So this was 1998. I think that we're a similar age because I was born in 89. Yeah, I was born in 91. So Mm -hmm. I was seven years old in 1998. So this was after it was in theaters. Right. And my parents were watching it on tv some tv channel was showing it and i happened to come downstairs and see some of it and so ever since i was you know really young i had been interested in mechanical things mainly cars i was really into cars specifically at this time of my life i was really into like edwardian era cars for whatever reason you know everybody else was into like you know, Corvettes and Ferraris and everything, but I was into, like, Edwardian cars. They do have a very, very distinct look. I mean, and I'm not saying that to sound like the world's most obvious statement, but it's it's not something you, like, we don't make cars like that today. That's that's antiquated. We can't can't make cars like that today because of safety regulations and everything. But, um, yeah, so I was really into cars that looked like from the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And so I happened to see, probably shouldn't really have seen, you know, the scene in the movie where they're in the car. And the I was famous like, car scene. I wasn't really paying attention to what they were 
doing in the car. <laughs> I was mostly like, whoa, that's a really cool car. That's super awesome. <laughs> Because that's, that's where my mind was at the time. I was seven, you know, I didn't know about, I didn't know what they were doing and wow. I couldn't care less. So I was I like, I still don't oh. know what they're doing. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> but like, we, we know what they were doing, but like, I was right. mostly like, wow, that's a really cool car. And then like, I think I probably came in to the movie like shortly before that scene happened. So that's about like what, halfway through ish. It's like you know, right before the shit. It's the yeah, part. it's like right before, like right at that halfway point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I came in the movie about halfway through. So mm-hmm. you know, the car scene happens, and I stay there and I watch the rest. You know, the sinking and all, and all of that. And I was just kind of like fascinated by mm-hmm. the, what what I now know is like the special effects and everything in that scene in the the sinking scenes in the movie. Right. So. I, then it astounded me and everything and so i was like well what is this and you know my parents were like oh this was a ship called the titanic it sank almost 100 years ago so on and so forth and i was kind of hooked on it i guess and so i wanted to know more about it and my parents like they bought me a whole bunch of books about it i i even still have a couple i guess kids books about the oh. titanic there I have probably the best one I got was um, they bought me one called 882 and a half amazing answers to your questions about the Titanic or something. Mm-hmm. It's literally just a book of facts about the ship. And I it's know this one. called, you know, the book. I do. I don't own okay. it, but I am familiar with the book. Then, then yeah. So you're familiar with it. So mm-hmm. I have that book and I had other, you know, like books about like the children on the Titanic and like mm-hmm. uh, one about like, um, there was one about like a, a teddy bear or something. I I have a vague idea of what you're talking about, but again, that was not one that I read, so I don't know what right. it's called. But I, I know what you're talking yeah, about. I forget. It was called like some teddy bear named the Titanic Bear, something like that. Anyway, yes. So I had a whole bunch of books about it. I drew a whole bunch of pictures of the Titanic at the time. I got really good at it. I'm actually nice. my profession is I'm a graphic designer, so I've actually oh, been cool. doing art stuff for a very long time and so i would draw a ton of pictures of the titanic and i would go like like i went to a couple exhibits and stuff in my younger days and stuff mm-hmm. and so super into it uh, and when i was a kid and i mean i still am and of course my the way that i um approach my fascination with it has changed over the years like like i said when i first saw the movie i was mainly just interested in the whole mechanical aspect and also just kind of interested in how the ship went down like the pure mechanics of oh it hit the iceberg and that popped the rivets in the hull and it took this long to sink and the mm-hmm. reason it broke apart was because of the stresses and all of you know all of that stuff and like oh yeah, the engine the literal they mechanics do. yes just like the mechanics and so that was what i was interested in initially was just the pure like facts about it and the mechanic i wasn't really at that time i didn't really have like a um like an emotional connection to like you know the actual loss of life in the disaster you know and so and that was obviously very much informed by the cameron film 
Yeah. And how, because that was like how I viewed it was through the lens of the Cameron film. Mm-hmm. And so then the older I got, like, I guess the next, I guess you could say phase in my interest, and this is kind of specific to the movie, was actually more about like the characterizations of, well, the characters in the film. And so I guess when I was like, you know, a preteen and teenager, I kind of reevaluated the film. I'm like, this is kind of like, like the, uh, the special effects are still amazing and everything. And the story mm-hmm. was good. But I was like, man, this love story is kind of, kind of dumb. Cause I was like, come on, who falls in love that fast? You're like, you're, you're on the ship for four days. What, mm-hmm. what are you doing? This is stupid. Like, this is completely unrealistic. This would never happen. But then as I got older, my perception of that changed again. Because mm-hmm. then I was like, well, Rose is caught in a situation she doesn't want to be in. She is in a she's in an abusive relationship with Cal mm-hmm. and her mother who only wants her to marry Cal so, you know, they can keep the family fortune and their good their good name in good standing and everything and she has she just feels completely trapped and i mean of course she says so in the movie like Mm -hmm. several times about how trapped she feels and so i was like well you know in that situation i can kind of understand how she just desperately wants to escape from this life that has been planned out for her and so when she finds a guy who's actually willing to consider what she wants out of life and even asks her questions she never even thought about. Like, what do you actually want to do? It's not this point. I can understand why she would fall for him. Also, you know, she's like 17. Mm-hmm. Teenagers, they, they do that sort of thing. You know, they, they fall quickly, especially for someone who actually shows a modicum of real interest in them that isn't just, you know, I want to marry you because you're hot. So right. like, I've now, as I'm older, heard one, not one too many. I was going to say one too many. That's not what I meant. But I've heard a lot more stories of people who, you know, went on vacation or like went on a cruise when they were younger, like not even necessarily 16, but, you know, anywhere between that, like 15 to 19 range. And you're having a good time somewhere. You're away from everyone. And, you know, um, I think the example that I come up with in fiction is Greece where um sandy and danny at the very beginning is like they're on vacation they're in this completely different place and he can be himself and it's this cute really intense little romance that happens just away from your normal world and that hit really intensely and then like you said there's the additional thing in this movie of no one's ever really just been nice to rose because she was a human being right and that's a really really big deal if you've been sort of othered your whole life and no one's ever looked at you besides what you are. If someone finally gives consideration to who you are. Exactly. Like, like Jack, you know, treated her as her own person with her own opinions and desires. Mm -hmm. And he kind of like, he's very much a symbolic figure. He kind of represents the freedoms that she can't have Mm -hmm. essentially in her current (laughs) life being, stifled by her parents and her fiance and everything so i mean i kind of i think you talked about this in 
probably one of your previous episodes about how Jack is very much a manic pixie dream boy type of character. <laughs> and I 100% agree. He very much is. In fact, you always hear about like the manic pixie dream girl trope. And I'm like, yep. are there any examples of like a male version of that? And Jack Dawson is absolutely that. He's totally I ha- that. I have to give credit to the Midnight Boys um, who also discussed that in depth. And and it's, it's not totally like an original thought of mine, but it is, um, I... I could talk a little bit more about that. So I, yeah. I'm i not like a film student or anything. I know that there are people who have, you know, genuinely studied film. But mm-hmm. I, you know, as, as I talked about a couple, like a second ago, I was born in 1989. So when I, in the 2000s is kind of when I was, quote unquote, coming into my own. I was becoming not an adult, but becoming a person with opinions, beginning to notice the world and trying to figure out like, who am I and where do I fit in? And that era of film, the movies that were popular around the end were this very specific genre of rom-com where, yep, you're nodding. Cause I think you know exactly where I'm going with this. It's yes, all I those know where you're going. Uh-huh. It's all those, the guy kind of negs on the girl. He's kind of an asshole to her the whole time. And then she goes through a makeover to change herself because she's the problem. Um, and happily ever after. And that teaches you two things as a woman. Or a person who's assigned female at birth. I will. Also, I'm going to expand that for people who are born AFAB. It's like it teaches you two things. Number one, you are always the problem. It is always going to be on you to fix whatever is wrong. Because I'm thinking specifically of like um, again going back to Greece. Like Danny is rude to her. The Danny whole is movie. a complete fucking dick. And- yeah, he's such a dick. Sandy should have dropped his ass, honestly. I don't know why she decided to change her... Like, God, you know, Grease is another one of those movies. I watched it when I was younger. I was like, oh, the music's cool. That that car they build in Grease Lightning, that's a super cool car. I love that race. And then I watch it now and I'm like, she is being gaslit the entire time. Yeah, and and it's... This is awful. And she should drop him and he sucks. Yeah, and then in the in the aughts, there was 10 Things I Hate About You, She's All That, She's the Man. It was full of these movies of which the moral ended up being, you are the problem. You have to change. And there was, that's also combined with the reality TV culture that promoted the concept of heroin sh- thin and heroin chic. It was like, you have to be thin, yeah. you have to be Eat this. Walks. Yes, you are the problem. You're the issue. If he doesn't like you, if he's mean to you, that's on you to change it. You need to fix it because you're the problem. And then they made the movie Titanic where that character was relegated to the villain role. (laughs) He wasn't the love interest. That was Cal. The love Mm -hmm. interest was, you know, quote unquote, a character. Guys would be like, oh, he's so weak. He's such a, he's so whipped or whatever. It's like, that's actually untrue. That's actually an extremely healthy version of masculinity because he actually cares about his partner. Yeah. And you would think that a lot of guys would say that about his character, but from mm-hmm. the reactions I've gotten from other men I know in my life who have watched the movie is they actually like Jack as a character mm-hmm. because he represents that kind of like swashbuckling errol flynn type like free-spirited adventurer you know yes and so any claims of him being a beta male or whatever the hell the terminology is now are like kind of they don't see that in him because he's 
this other ideal of masculinity where he is unencumbered by the shackles of life or whatever, even though he's, you know, dirt poor, as he explains during that dinner scene that affords him a ton of freedom that the rich people don't have. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Eddie. yeah, I, I mean, obviously, you know, the rich people, of course, have freedom in terms of their money. Sure. But it, especially back in that time period, it was a very regulated society. And so even though poor people were, of course, extremely disadvantaged during the Gilded Era, I guess the one thing they did have was relative freedom compared to the upper class. This is going to sound like it's unrelated, but did you see the um, podcast? Did you see the documentary um, series on Netflix, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey? Yes. It's tremendous. If if anyone's wondering, uh, please make sure that you are in a spot in the kind of uh, space where you can watch it. It's very tough, but it's very yeah. good. That's There's- the one about the... No, it's not the one about the Duggars. That's a different one. No, this is the... Um, oh, that's goodness. the one about the, the FLDS. Yep, there we go. Yes. I was, yes. So mm-hmm. there's one, you know, there's one section, I think even in the beginning, where they're kind of doing that quick thing in the beginning where they show you a bunch of the clips for what's to come. And they show a woman, and I can't remember her name, but where she basically says something along the lines of, I would rather have died than said No. That's how much control they had. And it, you know, I know that sounds like they're unrelated, but you think about some people think that Rose's reaction is extreme. Like, why wouldn't you just say no? Why would you just get out? When you're so entrenched in an abusive relationship or so entrenched in um, a very carefully orchestrated society like the FLDS, there isn't, there isn't a just get out. In 1912, for a woman, even a rich woman, if she were to walk away from her home, she doesn't walk away with a bag of jewels. She walks away with nothing. Right. She has absolutely everything to lose in yes. society. I, I know what you mean. I actually, this is also going off on the FLDS tangent. I actually read a book written by a woman who escaped um, that whole cult society thing like it was literally it was called escape and it detailed like what happened to her as a member of the flds and what her husband would do to her and Mm. the absolute brainwashing they would go through to make it seem like it was all okay and part of god's plan and this and everything and how she saw that once it started happening to the other women around her and her own children Mm. she was like I, I can't, I can't stay here. I have to leave. Mm-hmm. And she did lose okay. like almost uh, apart from her children. And, and even not all of her children even came with her. Some of them stayed behind because they were just conditioned to accept that the outside world was awful and yeah. they have to stay. And so she left with like her younger children and she had nothing. She had absolutely nothing except for like, one person on the outside who agreed to house her and her kids like that was all she had she had the clothes on her back and her kids that is it so yeah no i agree like especially for a woman back in that time even if you were rich you had you had no freedoms you had nowhere you could go you had no one you could turn to unless there was like an organization or someone who took pity on you 
So yeah, that that's why Rose at you know at one point in the movie she decides she's going to jump off the back of the ship because she'd rather be dead than confined to the life that her mother and Cal have made for her. I think that we've gotten better as a society about mental health between now and then. We obviously have a long way to go mm-hmm. to where you know people might look at the decision and think, well, why would you jump to such extreme? Like that's such a that's such a big step to take. And like we were discussing here, it's simply because you didn't have another option. You would, even now for many people, there's a reason that they, there's a statistic that's like, it takes people often up to gosh, seven times to leave an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. People don't go back to abusive relationships because they're like, I'm bored. I'd like to get beat up again. That's not what happens. It's I'm on the streets now with or without a child. I have no food. I have no job because, you know, these people get very isolated. You know, I have no clothes. I have nowhere to go, nothing to turn to except this man. Right. And he provides. Yeah. Like he might, you know, a be... modicum of security and food. He might be absolutely awful, but he is your meal ticket, he is right. your housing ticket. You have nowhere else to go. I I personally know a few women who have escaped abusive relationships. And yeah, it took them years Mm -hmm. to even muster up the courage to be able to do it because they had nowhere else to go. And so it's either, you know, I live out on the streets with absolutely nothing to my name or... I get abused here, but at least I have a home and food and electricity and running water and all of that. And so, yeah, it's it's an impossible decision to make. And then you add in something like Rose's dynamic, where not only do you have nothing outside of you, but in this situation, you also have everyone around you telling you, basically, aren't you so lucky? It's a fine match with Hockley. He's rich. He can provide, you know, and to everyone else, he's very charming. So oh, the outside course. world... They always are. They're exactly. so charming to everyone Precisely. else. Precisely. So the outside world just sees, what are you so bitter about? Why are you just being so rude? Why are you so mean at dinner? What is your problem? They don't see everything else. Right. And so, like, Jack represents the complete opposite of all of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, of course, she latches on to him because he is kind and gentle to her and he asks her about her life and her own her fears and her desires and he doesn't really expect anything of her like everyone else does and of course that is why she's attracted to him i mean i'm sure he probably you know may have wanted to get laid or something but like sure really expect that it will happen and it's notable during that car scene of course now that i've watched it a million times that (laughs) rose rose is the initiator Mm -hmm. in their one you know intimate moment that they had she was the one who took it there and he was kind of passive in that role which you don't see a lot in film no and i also think that that's important to acknowledge because one of the I'm going to bring up the Barbie movie again, but, you know. (laughs) Also a good movie. Sorry, not sorry, everyone. But part of America Ferreira's um, monologue Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. is basically the dichotomy of how you can't, you have to be this, but not to that. And one of the things that's very interesting, you know, about, again, being AFAB is that sort of Madonna whore complex where mm-hmm. it's kind Definitely. of, yeah. And it's very interesting in this particular case that they chose to let her, this female character show sexual agency. Because normally any, especially of that time period, a character doing that, it's like, she's a slut, lock her up, put her in the stocks, she's a whore! There's all that energy to it, and it's just like, she just wants to fuck, man. I mean, like, that's, it's right. not, I mean, it's not that complicated. She's 17. Yeah. The raging high, she's found this cute guy who doesn't treat her like shit. Yep. Of course she does. Come on. I mean, it's, and so I mean, as that's normal. Soon, as soon as she can get away from <laughs> her mother and Cal, and she's like, all right, let's go. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, down for this. As we keep finding out throughout history, like the Victorians and people from that those time periods were fucking filthy. People in history are just almost just gross when you think about it. So I was like, dude, do you think you're kinky now? There's no way that we're there's no way that modern society has out kinked the kinkers of the past. I can't prove it. I just don't think it's true. I mean, listen to like, you know, hear about like Caligula and everybody. (laughs) No, you're right. We can't. We can't out kink them. Like, man, that dude. I mean, who knows if those stories are true, but like if they are, damn. Right. But I mean, even though society as a whole was more outwardly prudish. Yes. It didn't mean that people, you know, weren't, you know, weren't, weren't into, into it. And again, you know, she was, as we're, we're discussing, she's finally realizing, and I think more important than just like the concept of sex and romance, she's realizing that there is a whole category of human beings out there who will look at her as more than just something they can benefit from like when she gets introduced to fabrizio and tommy and you know they say you know they're all hanging out at the party later on no one's looking at her like hey rose next round's on you eh they're just kind of like look she's dancing what yeah. a fun time yeah i mean they they pretty much i mean she has very limited interaction with fabrizio and tommy but i mean the few interactions she does have they're not like staring at her like she's an alien or anything they're just like okay yeah she's rich but like mm-hmm. hey you know she can party with the with the best of us and for her that's that to me that seems really important because i feel as though one of the you know again this is gonna sound like wow what a profoundly obvious statement but one of the best ways to sort of break down barriers is to have innocuous interactions mm-hmm. and it's that sort of thing where it's like she didn't need to have some crazy thing where like and this is my friend don't worry they're not gonna stare it's just like this is my friend Tommy. This is Fabry. This is Rose. Well, I mean, Jack and and the whole the way the third class passengers as a whole are portrayed is mm-hmm. pretty lax and easygoing. I mean, they're the ones having that super awesome Celtic music party downstairs, drinking beer, having doing arm wrestling and just dancing around. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, contrasted <laughs> with what the men in the smoking room are doing upstairs, where they're just it seems so stuffy. They're up there smoking cigars, having brandy, talking about, I don't know, stocks or whatever the hell it is rich people talk about. It's not fun. (laughs) No, it's not. And part of that, too, is also that um, ocean liner travel was changing. So, yeah, yeah, I've talked about it briefly on the show. But up until this time, 
steerage literally meant steerage. If, you know, third class, you brought your own food, you brought your own bedding, you know, it kind of yes. sucked. People I, got I sick. do remember reading that the Titanic was one of the first ships where mm-hmm. the steerage passengers. Yes. I mean, yeah, they were still in the bowels of the ship where it was mm-hmm. probably the most uncomfortable because of the vibration from the engines and everything. Sure. But like they had electricity and running water. Mm-hmm. They had like flushing toilets. Well, which is something ships did not have up until a couple of years beforehand. But I think almost more interestingly to me is that, so nowadays it's really easy for you and me to just go to Applebee's where someone right. will take our order and bring us our food for us and take our dishes away. Yes. And they didn't have to bring their own food. It was served no, they to had, them. It, they not only didn't have to bring their own food, but as you just said, most importantly, it was served to them. For many of these people, they had spent their entire lives being the servants. They yeah. had never in their lives had someone bring them a hot meal for them to eat at their leisure. They didn't have to rush. This wasn't a mess hall. They could just eat their food. And this was the first time many of them had their own beds. For many of them, they lived in communal housing or row housing or many, you know, children to a bed. Right. It was an experience that they never had. So I know that there's a lot of like, oh my gosh, the third class were all like giggly and what have you. It's like they weren't giggly just because poor people don't have any sense, you know. That wasn't no, what it they was. Were giggly because they they were introduced to facilities that they had never seen. Yes. And like they had their own bed. I mean, yeah, it was like four guys to a room that right. maybe you didn't know, but you were at least each in your own beds, your own bed, You had electric lights, you had running water, you had food, like you said, that was served to you. And it was food that like, I mean, I've read like the historical menus and stuff, yeah. even for third class, it was pretty damn good food. I like it. it wasn't just gruel and slop. It was no, it was freshly food. baked bread. It was meat. It was fresh fruits and vegetables, even which required refrigeration technology. Mm-hmm. Like I am sure that you know the third class passengers had barely ever experienced anything like that before. No, and for many of them, you know, when you see a lot of the surviving letters, there's you know a lot of the descriptions are like, oh, and the food, and it sounds like people are being. It sounds like people are being a little like uh, Disney princessy about it. And it's like, oh, and they could have spoken about the food for ages. But for many (laughs) people, it's like they could have spoken about the food for ages. They'd never had some of these dishes before. It was that's important to understand. Now you go on a carnival cruise. Oh, my God. My boyfriend and I went on a cruise earlier this year, and it absolutely just blew me away. Because first of all, you got a lot of food. There's so much food and it's all pretty good. But there were some people that would order like two for themselves, by the way, two appetizers, two entrees and two desserts. It's just sort of like, whoa, I don't know where you're putting putting all that. And that's kind of normal now. But then you you think all the way back to these 1912 folks in the Titanic who are like, somebody just brought me bread on a plate. Right. (laughs) I've I've never personally been on a cruise. Um, I'm I've heard varying things about (laughs) who are. So I'm not sure I'm entirely excited about the idea. I've heard they're crowded and regimented and uh, disease harbingers. <laughs> yeah. I, I I enjoyed my time. I will also say like <clears throat> a cruise is what you make out of it. Like I like to go on a cruise to decompress. So I actually spend a lot of time like just hanging out. Like I'll hang out in the adult only lounge, just chilling. Like I'm not constantly running from activity to activity. 
Mm. I'm, I'm more like, um, the number one activity on the Titanic was promenading, just wandering around up right. and down and hanging out on the deck. That's me. I'm like, I just want to hang out on the deck, watch the world, sun, have a little drink. That's also yeah. probably something the steerage passengers weren't used to. They had the poop deck as like their mm-hmm. entire promenade space. Mm-hmm. They actually had a promenade space. Yeah. Which would have probably blown some of their minds just to be able to just have an area like outside where they could just hang out. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's not to say that there weren't issues. There were a lot of, you know, we right. talk about uh, the gates that were the strongest in the Titanic were not actually made out of iron. They were made out of societal expectations. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it's true. Like, yeah. I think it was less that they actually locked people up and more the sort of knowledge that it was an unspoken caste society at the time. Not quite as intense as, say, India, but... I mean, they literally broke people up into classes. There was the Mm -hmm. first class for all the rich folks and the second class for the middle class folks and then third class or steerage for the poor folks. And that's it. And they were not allowed to intermingle. And so even though, yes, they had all this great food and the facilities they'd never seen before and all of that, they were kept strictly separate. And yeah, it wasn't really like the reason most of the third class passengers didn't survive the sinking wasn't because they were physically locked from accessing the lifeboats like the movie would have you believe, actually. It was more that like, they were down in the bowels of the ship. It was a maze to get up to the boat deck in order to access the lifeboats. And a lot of these people were immigrants who didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. And all the signs were in English because that's how it was back then. It was a British ship. You All the officers and the stewards, they all spoke English. So if you didn't speak English, you were kind of shit out of luck. There were a lot of things, unfortunately, that would work against you. It's sort of, it's one... <laughs> It's looking at the negative sides of why everyone likes the story so much. And the negative sides are that, you know, it was still very much like a class-based society. There was still a lot of racism. There was a lot of misogyny happening. There was a lot of very outrightly negative things. Yes. And that kind of brings me to another phase, I guess you would say, in my interest Mm -hmm. of the Titanic, is learning about some of the, um, the people on the ship who didn't really get their stories told. Um, for example, the Chinese passengers, mm-hmm. who, I mean, there's there's that documentary out there, The Six, about the Chinese mm-hmm. passengers. Have that, you seen it? No, I haven't seen it because it's, it's not, really you know, good. technically available in the U.S. Yeah, I know. It's, I know it's, it's very frustrating. Had, you had the, what, the director or the writer or of, of that documentary on your show a few episodes back. Yeah, I had Steven on. He is yeah. like the editor, writer, producer, kind of involved right. person with the six. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so when I heard about that, my first reaction was, there were Chinese people on the Titanic? I know, like, I right? didn't even know. I had no. no clue. And so then I was like, this is actually fascinating because I pretty much thought it was all white people the entire time. Like, even the movie would mostly have you believe that the immigrants were like Irish and Italian and like (laughs) Swedish and all of that. But although there are, now that I've watched the movie a few times since there are a couple instances, like there, there's, um, 
a one scene where a Jack and Rose are, you know, going through the corridors trying to escape. And there is this couple speaking Arabic. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wait, I don't think I really paid attention to that before. And so I have then learned that there were quite a few um, third class passengers from the former Ottoman Empire, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Syrians and um, Armenians, Palestinians. And they were there and there was a good number of them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the the Chinese passengers, of whom only two died, six actually managed to survive. And of course, when they got to the U.S., they weren't allowed in because of the um, the Chinese, the anti-Chinese um, immigration laws. Yeah, which you know, it's like, oh, I knew about that, so I was like, I didn't even know there were Chinese passengers on on the Titanic. But of course, that is how they were treated, even though they survived. And all the right. newspapers portrayed them as cowardly and all of that because that's just what they did back then yeah it was just easier to do things like that and then i even learned about like um joseph laroche who Mm -hmm. was as far as we know the only black passenger on the titanic apart from his daughters who were mixed race because he actually had a white wife Mm -hmm. which probably would have garnered a lot of stares Especially considering he was second class. Yes. And so, but um, obviously he he ended up, you know, perishing in the the disaster. But his wife and his two kids lived. Yes, they did. And I think one of his daughters was among the last survivors. And so she was like, you know, a person of color on the Titanic who survived. And his story hasn't really been told all that much up until recently. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't even know that there was a mm-hmm. Haitian guy aboard the Titanic. Mm-hmm. That's news to m- many people. And yeah. it's just, you know, what's the old the old saying? It's like history is told by, you know, the victors or what have you. It's not to say there's a victor in the situation, but, you right. know, this was before, we, you know, this country as a whole really started to give any voice to people of color. We were very much, you know, only in the uh, practice of elevating white voices so of course you know in the aftermath of all this they weren't exactly seeking out the you know the woman whose haitian husband had died sadly they should have they 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 basically very obviously did not care no they did not i mean during the inquiries i mean first of all they they mostly only interviewed first class passengers Mm -hmm. very few third class passengers of any ethnicity were asked about their experiences at all in, at least in the official inquiries, and those that were were you know white English speaking immigrants. Yeah, and then like I also heard about Masabumi Hosono, who was the only Japanese passenger on the Titanic. He ended up surviving. He was in second class, and apparently when he returned to Japan, they treated him like J. Bruce Ismay. Mm-hmm. Like he was shunned for having the gall to survive instead of sacrificing himself like all the other noble men did it's like he literally just had the human impulse to not die why are you denigrating him for it and it's because that's how society was yep it is extremely interesting when you think about it you know again we were just talking about how some people were like i would have rather have died than said no it's just interesting Mm -hmm. how in some cases it's like survival is shameful right because like 
it's like, well, instead of surviving, you could have helped all these other people. And it's like, yeah. And that would be a noble thing to do. But also, like, I have instincts for self-preservation. And I shouldn't really be shamed for that. You know? Not only that, but most of us are not, you know, trained in disaster relief. And I'll fully admit, I don't, I don't know that. what I would do. Right. What is, what mean, is my responsibility? People are panicking. Like, what are you going to do? I mean, that's why, like, I, obviously when the sinking first began, people were not panicking because they didn't even believe the ship was sinking. But once it became clear to them, you know, any order was kind of just thrown to the wind. Like, people were climbing on overturned lifeboats, bobbing in the water, desperate to save themselves, because of course they were. What am I looking up? I wasn't looking for Astroworld, actually. I, w- I just I googled it. What I was looking for was it, what was that rock concert where, oh god. Do you know what I'm talking about, where a bunch of people were crushed to death? At the Who? Yes, I think it was a Who concert because yes, it was, it was. so packed. <clears throat> I mean, people were even. I heard reports that there were people who were crushed to death at Woodstock because <laughs> there I mean, were way too way more people than they were expecting. Well, it's just the whole concept of panic when when panic sets in when when that level of frantic freneticism kicks into action, people. Well, they panic. I mean, your sense of logic leaves you because it's no longer about, okay, if I do this and I do that, your adrenaline spikes up. Everyone around you is panicking. You're panicking. There's no clear sense of direction. And that's how you get, you know, the Who concert. That's how you get Astroworld. That's how you Mm -hmm. get these situations where just a panic starts and a crowd surges and people are on. Exactly. I And that's what happened, especially, and then you compound that with, like, being dunked into freezing cold water. Mm-hmm. Like, it's going to make it even worse. Well, there was that uh, clip in Titanic where the um, the drowning man is using Rose to stay afloat. I right. mean, that's not a normal person's thought. That is a dying person's thought. Yeah, you can't really blame him. I mean, obviously, in the movie, we want to blame him. I think, like, Jack, like, punches him in the face or whatever. But, yeah. like, you can't really blame him for doing that in the throes of death, mostly. Like, this dude has less than 10 minutes to live because he's in 28-degree water. Like, he's going to succumb to hypothermia in 10 minutes. Of course he's acting like this. Everyone, you know, begins to panic. And it's that thing where a lot of people criticize, like, well, I would have done this, well, I would have done that. No one, yeah, you never you know. don't know what you would have done. I hear no. the same thing. About people talking about, like, what they would have done in, like, an active shooter situation. Yep. It's like, you have no clue what you would have... You weren't there. You have no clue what you would have done. You wouldn't have been calm and rational. No, you would have... No one is. Like, even people who are specifically trained in those scenarios are rarely calm and rational. Right. It's everything you can to keep yourself as calm and as rational as you can be. Mm-hmm. But there's usually some level of at least internal panic because these kind of situations are not 
you know, they're not kind. These are literal life and death situations. People don't make the world's best choices in these circumstances. No, they don't. Because the instinct is to just survive. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, again, going back to this movie, I think that's also why it's it's impactful because it is realistic. It shows people panicking. It shows people scared. It shows people trying their best in a situation in which there was no good outcome. Right. And I think that's why the movie continues to, to endure. And also just the story of the Titanic disaster itself continues to endure because it's kind of like, like the kind of the, the Titanic disaster kind of contrasts with like, say ships that were sunk because they were involved in a war or something like this was pure, just essentially bad luck. Like there, there were no hostilities going on. Like the, ship wasn't torpedoed like the Lusitania or anything. It was, it had the misfortune to hit an iceberg on an extremely clear night when there was no moonlight and it was still, they couldn't see the iceberg because they forgot the binoculars and, and the iceberg struck the ship in such a way that it, you know, breached like just one more watertight bulkhead than it could, than could, than it could stay afloat on. And it was just, just pure bad luck. And so all of these people were doomed due to a set of kind of naturally occurring circumstances. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so that kind of gets me to the point of like, why is the Titanic over other disasters and other shipwrecks so enduring? And one thing I want to know is like, so I'm, I'm going to say I'm autistic. Mm -hmm. And so I have noticed that there are quite a few autistic people who are really into that, into the Titanic and I'm one of them. And so it's like, why is that? I mean, obviously people who aren't autistic are into it too, but like the people who I, who I have seen who are like super into it, who aren't like, you know, actual researchers, the people who are super into it are like, they tend to be neurodiverse in some way. And so it's like, why this specific shipwreck over others or other natural disasters, you know, like, why, why is it, is it because of the time period in which it sailed? Uh, Like that kind of like turning over of like the Gilded Age into World War One. Is it the technology that it employed? And I think it's all of those things. Like, it, it's just... It's it's just a whole bunch of things together that make it extremely interesting. Like, the nature of the disaster itself, the, the facts uh, of it, and then the emotional impact that it had on the survivors and just the the fact that it was like i think wasn't it like the worst maritime disaster at least in peacetime up until very recently i think something so like what, that is that so like yeah and so like i've been wondering like why am i into this like why am i so into this <laughs> and i think it is a compounding of all of those factors one i am into like machinery and mechanical things and the titanic was a 
technological, mechanical marvel mm-hmm. of its time. It was like, you know, had it was the most technologically superior, like moving vessel of its time period. And so that's really cool. Had all the super cool new tech on it, like wireless radio and all that. And uh that and just yeah, and, and and just the time period in which it happened, and the attitudes and, of society at that time, and the stories of the people who survived and the ones who didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's just a fascinating subject, but it's still a little bit of a mystery as to why other natural disasters usually don't get the same hype, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't have you know, an Aquitania talk line. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, the loose Or a triangle short, shirtwaist factory talk line. Although, you know, that is also an interesting story. And Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, and, and like other shipwrecks, like even the Lusitania is probably the, at least from the time period, probably the second most famous mm-hmm. shipwreck. But, you know, like, what is, like, just what is it about the Titanic? And there have been so many, like, as far as I know, there's never been a movie made about the Lusitania or Not that I'm aware of. anything like that. So, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's, I don't I don't, maybe it's an unanswerable question as to why it is specifically the Titanic that we're all obsessed with. Uh, maybe one day in the future we'll find out. But unfortunately, I don't think today is that day. Because no, I, I have enough. no clue. No. Me either. I'm Me just either. kind of I kind of felt like I was going off on a tangent of questions there. It's like Oh, that's my entire show. But but well, Jay, thank you so much for coming on, for talking about your story and about the movie and about like all eight hundred other things I wanted to talk about. Yeah. yeah all no, the tangents. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show and uh we'll see everybody next time, I think. Maybe. Maybe. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!